The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. You're listening to Just Some Podcasts, and here's your hosts, Ben and Tom. Hello, everybody. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. And this is another wonderful, exciting, informational episode of Just Some Podcasts for Advanced Practitioners. Yeah, it is. The enthusiasm, people. Can you feel it? (laughs) So, Ben, tell me about your week. Well, you know, it's really not been too bad of a week this week. Pretty busy in the uh, clinic. Starting to see a lot of the upper respiratory crud. we got a bad stomach bug going around in this area right now, so seeing a whole bunch of that. But otherwise, just uh, staying busy. We're involved in the state organization for nurse practitioners, so we're working on a bunch of stuff in the background for that also. So it's been a pretty good week. How about you? So far, so good. No complaints. Um just throwing out there, if people are seeing a lot of the upper respiratory infections, just saying there is an informational episode on that, not done too long ago, I think would be helpful if anybody needs some information. Mostly for me, has been dealing with uh, children. I have a little boy and, well, adventures in dentistry. We'll just put it that way. It was a uh, exciting day. Nothing major, but God bless those people. I, I don't think I could do it. So it's it's been fun, though. I 100% know that I couldn't do that. I think I could do some of it until you're telling a little one, like, oh, by the way, uh, we might have to pull your tooth out. There's no there's no good reaction from five years old to adult. You are not going to have a positive outcome. Well, there's another thing that I would file into things that I wouldn't do, Tom, and that is a preschool teacher because, damn... Yeah, I have trouble dealing with the house full, house full of little kids that I occasionally get now. And if you told me every day I had to go to a room of 30 of them, you would have to commit me to a psych ward. Yeah, those people are definitely saints. I couldn't do it, but hey, I'm glad that there are people out there who can and more power to you. But uh, Tom, what do you think of our music? I think it is fantastic, and a big shout-out to John, our music producer. That guy is just on point. And Jason, you know who you are. Thank you for all the feedback, brother. We can't thank you enough for all the positivity that you are sending our way. So big shout-out to John and Jason. Yeah, that's greatly appreciated. We John strives hard to pick some wonderful music for us, and uh, you know he just hits it out of the ballpark every single time. Yeah, the sound effects that he and Kyle, our sound engineer, come up with are just every day. I wonder how do they do it, and I feel so lucky. But you know, if we keep expanding the staff, we're going to have to start getting some sponsors sometime, Tom. You'd think so at this rate. Um, yeah, that's a big shake of the head from Sam, the fact checker. We definitely need to do something, but don't worry, boys. We know you're doing this for the love of the podcast, and money is not necessary. That's right. They're giving us a big thumbs up and clapping from the booth. (laughs) Oh, yeah, they are. Oh, yeah, they are. So, uh, Ben, 
if somebody really enjoyed that music and they said, hey, how can I look up more stuff on this podcast? Where on social media can these people find us? Well, Tom, I'm glad you asked. We're pretty easy to find. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. You can also reach us on our website, www.justsomepodcast.com. Uh, I can tell you on that, we have made some updates to the website. I don't know if you've seen that or yet, yet or not, Tom, but we have updated the website. We've added an episode synopsis so that if you miss an episode, you can go back and see what the episode was about. The other thing that we did was we added all the stories we talk about and stories that you may have missed. We added links to those stories, so if you want to read more, you certainly can. But if you want to also email us, because we have gotten several emails the last week or so, we are at admin at justapodcast.com. At any point, I'm waiting for the prices right or Jeopardy to call and be like, can we borrow Ben? And I'll be like, no, you can't, Alex Trebek. Step off. That's right. I am all yours at this podcast. That's it. We do this for the listeners, not for the fame. Well, no, absolutely not. But, Tom, if the listeners are out there and they want to, hey, you know what? I like the show. I want to help support it. What can they do? Well, you know, what they can do is, one, they can share us with their friends, their family, and just about anybody that will stay still for 15 seconds so that they can tell them about all our social media options. Also, if they really want to help us out, one of the big things uh, we're trying to do is use our Amazon affiliate links, which you can find on our website. And I believe um, on the Facebook post, we have those links up as well. And people, Ben and I do this a hundred percent on our own. Each episode is produced by us, all the money in the show for the equipment, everything at this point in time, running the software, etc., has all been done by us. And we're happy to do so, but we want to make the show even better and to do, continue to do that. Any help from you guys, would be great. All you have to do is use the link. It costs you absolutely zero. You're still going to be able to use your fine Amazon products and click on them and buy them drunk in the middle of the night on wine, whatever it is you're doing anyways. But then we actually get a little bit of return on that so we can make the show even better for you. Who knows, Tom? Maybe we'll add video cameras, but if that's the case, you're going to have to put a shirt on. So, Do I have to put on pants is the question. No, we'll just shoot you from the waist up. We'll be fine. Well, ladies, the line starts to the left. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if we get sued, it's not my fault. <laughs> well, Tommy, we're going to jump into stories that we may have missed. I'm waiting for you on pins and needles, my friend. So I found this interesting article uh, that was published today, and it's actually in reference to an article in JAMA that hundreds of supplements have been found to contain hidden drugs like Viagra or steroids. Which supplements are these so I could start buying them immediately? Well, the uh, FDA, you know, they do inspect a small percentage of supplements sold in the United States, and over the uh, last nine years, they've issued warnings for about 776 different products, Tom, so I guess you can take your pick of those. But a lot of them were pertaining to sexual enhancement, weight loss, muscle building, and those were the ones that tended to have more of the traces of either drugs like Viagra or even drugs that have been taken off the market or uh, synthetic steroids in them. Well, you know, considering we discussed in our first episode diets and I have been on multiple supplements, I'm just hoping we don't have an embarrassing episode at some point. (laughs) So maybe I do need to find out exactly what supplements those are. And uh, we can avoid any embarrassment in the future uh, work days or anything else like that. That would uh, be a disaster. 
the other thing I found kind of interesting about this it says, you know, the study's authors pointed out that hidden pharmaceutical ingredient, ingredients may be one of the reasons why supplement use is associated with 23,000 emergency department visits and 2,000 hospitalizations each year in the United States. The thing is, and I used to work at a uh, store that provided supplements. We do, in fact, well, at least I did, and the people I worked with, we do try and tell them, hey, you know right here where it says don't exceed two in a 24-hour period? That really means don't exceed two in a 24-hour period. If you go home and take 14 of these, there's going to be repercussions. I'm just throwing that out there. Especially if they're linked with uh, Viagra. You could have a, uh, a problem pop-up, shall we say. Yeah, and then someone's going to have to manually aspirate that problem away, and nobody wants to be involved in that. Not at all. But I think this does go back to making sure that we educate our patients or the the general public that you need to be mindful of what you're putting in your body, you need to do the research on these products, and don't buy this shit off the internet that promises to enhance certain parts of your anatomy or it's going to, you know, you're going to wake up tomorrow and weigh 100 pounds less because... Uh, probably not going to be the best product and may be tainted with stuff that you don't want to be tainted with. Yeah, and actually that brings up two legitimate things I would warn people is, one, educating the patients and saying, hey, are you taking anything extra because I don't want any interactions with prescriptions? That's key. Two, this is just some helpful common sense. If you are ordering something from a website that looks like it's written in Sanskrit and you don't know exactly what's going on, Perhaps you should not be putting that in your mouth or anywhere else. But, Tom, it'll make certain appendages grow more, according to the website. Or according to the 42,000 spam emails every person has ever gotten? Yeah, it's possible, but uh, I don't think it's worth the problems you're going to get. Like, my heart exploding or my hand falling off are not worth weight loss. Just throwing that out there. Well, that's a valid point, Tom. Every once in a while. Yeah, luckily it's not often for you, though, so... What do you say we get into uh, tonight's main topic? You know, this is something that I know is near and dear to your heart, so I'm going to let you take the lead on this episode, and I'm going to try to fill in some sarcastic remarks like cream corn in your socks occasionally, just to lighten it up, but go ahead, Tom. What, what are we got? What are we going to talk about tonight? We are going to be discussing workplace violence, which I know is a major major story it's being covered i've seen at today alone i saw three other people post facebook stories or uh, reports done on workplace violence in healthcare not just in general in healthcare specifically so i know for the majority of people listening to this and by the way ben i have been getting feedback from people that are not in healthcare that have also found our podcast and they they probably want to hear some of these uh, these ideas and factors as well. It's going to be healthcare-centric, but these are honestly things that anyone can really apply to their workplace. Also, even though it's workplace violence-centered, and that is going to be the vast majority of what we're talking, disaster preparedness is, in general that can go along with this. It's the same mindset. Like, what are you going to do if the shit hits the fan? I want everybody to know what their options are and or at least we can start them down the path to thinking about what their options are and what they can do about it. Yeah, disaster preparedness is something I'm pretty well versed in. Uh, I did get the opportunity for several years to be the emergency preparedness coordinator for the local hospital that I worked for. 
And when I would go into the uh, new employee orientation and I would give my uh, spiel about emergency preparedness, the first thing that I would say is if you want a depressing job, go into emergency preparedness because your job is to think of every bad thing that could possibly happen and then try to come up with a plan for it. Yeah, I honestly, workplace violence and disaster is indirectly what got me into nursing. Uh, for those that haven't heard in past episodes, I was in law enforcement for, well, half a career. And in the town where I was at that time, the local hospital did not have a dedicated security force. I think they have since upgraded that. I believe so, yes. And what people need to know is that when you don't have that, the local police obviously serve as that security force. So I was constantly in the emergency room dealing with those nurses, dealing with these patients, and getting to know those nurses is eventually what led me down the path to thinking, hey, I think I really want to get into healthcare. My previous experience as a police officer also, but also as a 911 dispatcher, is kind of what led me into emergency preparedness was they said, hey, you know, you have this background. We would like you to bring, we'd like to bring you into the healthcare side of things as far as planning for things. And I say it was a depressing job. It really wasn't. I, I enjoyed it greatly. It was educating the staff of, hey, here's our plan. Here's how we're going to execute this plan if, if things happen. And then we got to do the drills to kind of see where, uh, you know, our shortcomings were and work on cinching those up. Based on my background, after I got into nursing and um, I was fortunate enough to be in some positions that I got to work with uh, organizations like the Society of Trauma Nurses, who at one point put out a feeler. They wanted to do a position a paper on workplace violence. I contacted them and said, hey. Here's my background. Here's what I do. Um, I had contributed and been published by them previously, so I knew some of the staff, or I had talked to some of the staff at least. And it slowly evolved into us starting a workplace violence task force that I was fortunate enough to be the founding chairman of their national workplace violence task force. It was short-lived, unfortunately. Life happens, and I had to take some other jobs, and I didn't feel like I could contribute 100% to it that it deserved, but that's how I got into it, and that's my background. I, I've done a lot. I shouldn't say a lot. I've done plenty with workplace violence, and I've also had the pleasure of helping teach to a nursing college on this very subject. So it's it's something, like you said before, it's near and dear to my heart, and I, I want to take care of my patients to the best of my ability but there is, I think, an innate feeling in all of us that we're trying to protect each other. And I think it's important for us to recognize that and develop it. I think that just comes with the territory, particularly if you work in the emergency room. Uh, I was very protective of the staff that I worked with. You know, one female doctor in particular used to say that she loved working with me because she knew no matter where she was in the ER... If I heard the patient that she was with raise their voice, or if I heard her raise her voice, she just felt this presence behind her. And she knew that it was me, and she knew that I was there to, to make sure that things weren't going to you know, turn south. But I think there's that natural kind of protective aspect that kind of leads us into ER nursing sometimes. I, I completely agree. Uh, some people, and it's a combination thing for ER nursing, and I do want to point out that the vast majority, and we're going to get into some statistics later, but the vast majority of violence is going to happen in emergency rooms. So a lot of these facts and statistics and stuff that we're going to talk about are going to be ER-centric. However, 
it is important for every person listening to this to understand that workplace violence is starting to touch every aspect of healthcare. It does not matter anymore if you are in the ER, if you're in labor and delivery, if you're on fifth floor, or if you're in a clinic or a nursing you are or a nursing home that you are completely subject to the whims of these people that have decided that they are allowed to treat you like trash and that they are going to physically assault you. There there is no more safe place in healthcare that this won't touch. I do want to give one shout out to somebody who's probably never going to listen to this podcast, but a person who's brought a lot of this into the forefront, uh, Z Dog MD. Um, you know, he actually has a hashtag now, hashtag silence no more, that is talking about workplace violence. And he's bringing a lot of this to the forefront. And it's, it's stuff that nurses and physicians and everybody has dealt with for years. And we've just put up with it. And now it's finally getting the light that it deserves. Uh, so I think that's awesome that he's using that platform that he has to bring to mind this subject of healthcare violence. Exactly. And I will be one of the first to give him major props. So if you ever do hear this, shout out Z-Dog. He is always completely supportive of nurses, nursing actions, what we do, how we do it, and who we do it with, which is the patients. He is always one of the first people to come forward and say, hey, nurses are awesome or nurses are getting hurt and really make a stand and say that this needs to be taken care of. And his hashtag silent no more has been phenomenal. I I really think completely that some of the reason that we see social media light up so much more or so many more times with stories of this is because of people like him and maybe directly him bringing this up. So Tom, what exactly is workplace violence? Okay. So I want to give you the official definition, Ben, and then we're going to discuss it. (laughs) So OSHA, the department or the occupational safety and health administration, OSHA. So if you hear us reference that and you don't know what it is, that's what it is. They're the people responsible for trying to make sure everybody, not just healthcare is safe in the workplace. They define it as workplace violence is any act or threat of physical violence, harassment, intimidation, or other threatening disruptive behavior that occurs at the work site. It ranges from threats and verbal abuse to physical assaults and even homicide. It can affect and involve employees, clients, customers, and visitors, OSHA. So basically, everything that we have talked about, and honestly, what the grand majority of everybody listening to this podcast, it's it's something you have seen or been involved with in your workplace. Oh, yeah. When you read that definition off, I was like, that sounds like every day in the ER, unfortunately. Every day in the ER, and honestly, I, I did do six months in the float pool. I'm sure every depart- or every hospital has their own version. Float is where you are paid to go wherever they are short. And so uh, I got the pleasure to work with some very hardworking nurses up on MedSurge. God bless you people as well. It wasn't for me. I eventually went back to ER. But everywhere I went in the hospital, it didn't matter. Violence, threats. Uh, intimidation were all completely part of the workplace anymore, anywhere in the hospital. Which is complete and utter bullshit, I think. That's my personal opinion. Well, completely. (laughs) 
Um, so some some other another fact from OSHA right off the bat here, and OSHA is part of the U.S. Department of Labor. If anybody wants to look up the website, healthcare workers are four times more likely to be injured and require time away from work than private industry jobs. Four times. So just being in healthcare, an STNA, which in Ohio is a uh, state tested nurse assistant, you, they call them something different everywhere, techs, whatever. To the physician himself, we just being in healthcare makes you four times more likely to be injured at work, which to me is just, well, we've said it before, let's say it again, bullshit. And here's part of the reason why, and I hope the Joint Commission, and I hope JCO, and I hope HFAP, and I hope whoever else out there is listening, OSHA apparently is doing really well. So, you know, when you see people at construction sites and they are mandatory, got to wear a hard hat. Well, people were getting hit in the head with wrenches. OSHA said, hey, put on helmets. Guess what? People didn't get hurt from, well, they still probably get hurt, but not hurt as often or as bad because of that. So what is our safety people doing? Oh, they're making sure we don't have drinks at the workstation. Way to go. That's really helping me out from getting my ass kicked by somebody that's high on drugs or mad because they had a wait time. Thank you for looking out for me. But you know, OSHA is stepping in sometimes. I was doing some research for this episode. I actually found an, I found an article from May that said that OSHA had levied, levied more than $71,000 in fines to a behavioral health facility in Brandonton, Florida for, quote, failure to institute controls to prevent patients from verbal and physical threats of assault, including punches, kicks, and bites, and from using objects as weapons. Apparently, there were so many incidents over a period of two years at this one particular facility that OSHA stepped in and said, this is crap, this needs to stop. So what did they do? They hit them in the pocketbook. $71,000 in fines is going to probably wake some hospitals up. And unfortunately, that's what it's going to take. And thank you, OSHA, for stepping up when our own healthcare safety administrations aren't doing anything for us. Thank you for stepping up and doing something about it. And also, and I'm going to kind of get to this hopefully throughout this episode, or maybe I'll just say it right now. Part of the culture of what's causing this is administrators and your hospitals, you know, not yours, Ben, but the person that's listening, your hospital is not unique. Administrators across this country have placed a premium on patient satisfaction and money over your safety. So that's kind of the the foundation that has been laid that is causing this workplace violence epidemic. Now, I'm going to briefly disagree with you to an extent. I don't think that it's purely hospital administration. I do agree that that, that premium is in place on patient satisfaction. However, that's, that's not coming from hospital administration only. That's also coming from your reimbursement rates. So that's coming from Medicare, Medicaid, and all the insurance companies. They're putting the patient satisfaction to be the number one thing. And then, therefore, it's kind of rolling downhill to administrators and unfortunately rolling downhill onto the staff that has to deal with these patients. And, you know, it, it changes that H from a hospital to a Hilton. Okay. So I, I, I don't think that's so much a disagreement as maybe a correction into a wider scheme. But it's, it's the same point, and I completely agree. I completely agree. However, if you're the CEO of that hospital and one of your nurses gets killed, guess who the bucks is going to stop with in my eyes? It's going to stop with you if you knew there was a pro- if you knew that there was a problem and nothing was done about it, then I think the buck stops with you. But there, there Ben there's there's so much information. There's studies uh, US News and World Report in 2015 has studies between 2012 and 2014 that show violence and injuries to nurses had doubled that 
75% of the 26,000 significant workplace violence events. So I want to make sure I'm clear. 26,000 significant workplace violence events. Not just something bad happened. Specifically, workplace violence events. 75% of those happened to healthcare workers. 75%. I mean... The trend is clearly not going down, and, and we'll talk about that some more with some other statistics. So one of the things I want to make sure that people are understanding is that this is going to happen to you. Now, maybe you're not going to get assaulted with a knife or shot at, but something involving workplace violence is going to happen to you. You need to have a plan, and that's we're going to get throughout this whole episode. But I think it's important people realize that from the beginning, why you and I are doing this, and so that they understand we're giving you this information so that you know what you need to be doing. Which kind of went back to all the stuff that I did in disaster preparedness. And that's kind of what I ended my talks on is this is not dealing with a what if this is going to happen, but when is it going to happen? Not only is it going to happen, but we can almost guarantee that the rates of these incidents, including disasters, um, are going to be higher because people aren't reporting everything. They're assuming that some of the stuff's happening on their jobs and it, or I shouldn't say on their jobs, that they consider it part of their jobs, especially that is a very old school mentality. Like, oh, well, you got into this. You knew it might happen. Um, no, no, it's not. Now, granted, you have to take that with some common sense and levity. But at the same time, if you are being threatened or you know, assaulted, battery, whatever, whatever your state calls it, that's not supposed to be happening. And you need to know that. See, I told you guys he was passionate about this. Oh boy, yeah, yeah. It's it's just going to get worse. So going into that is understanding. You know, we we both have been through some workplace violence or disasters. Uh, ben, do you want to talk about Joplin briefly? Yeah, I can. I I'm sure for anybody who watched national media several years ago, and I don't even remember how long ago it was now. 2011. Was it? Wow, thank you. Uh, yeah, you know the tornado hit. Joplin, Missouri, they had very little warning. Uh, this is actually part of the TNCC lecture now. They discussed Joplin in, in detail. But um, both facilities, uh, both hospitals that were level two trauma centers, I believe, yes, were both hit by this tornado. One more severely than the other. And I was sitting at home and I was, you know, 60 miles away or so. And you see the guy from the weather channel get on there and just pleading for doctors and nurses to come to Joplin. And so I loaded up with a bunch of nurses that I worked with and we headed over, didn't know what the hell we were going to find when we got there. And it was complete and total devastation. Um, it's one of the few times that I've ever been stopped at a, you know, they partitioned traffic off and, Rolled down my window and said, we're nurses. They opened the, you know, the gates and let us through because we were nurses. And I can also say from my personal experience in disaster preparedness that one particular hospital in Joplin ten tended to take a beating in the media more than the other one did. The one that was less severely hit and for not being prepared for this influx of patients. But I without knowing anything specifically about that hospital's plan, I would lay money on the fact that they probably never planned to be the only hospital in that big of a metropolitan area. And I can also now guarantee you 
and I would lay a, a paycheck on this, they had that in their plan now. <laughs> I Well, Ben, I actually worked at that other hospital. So, yes, I can tell you right now that they completely have information and plans to execute a case of this event. So if you're at home listening to this, just imagine – and this ties into workplace violence, and I'm going to get to that here in a second. So imagine there are two hospitals, and you're both seeing 500 patients a day, and then one goes away. Instantaneously, you have now doubled to 1,000 people. When people are like, well, how didn't they do that? Well, how didn't Apollo 13 plan on, you know, some of the stuff that they had? I mean, there are just events that are going to happen that prior to Joplin, I think we think of it different now. But prior to Joplin, hospitals, emergency preparedness, we didn't sit around going, well, in case, you know, complete devastation happens and there are no other resources available, what are we going to do? It just didn't exist to this extent. I'm sure there are places that have flooding or hurricanes that they're like, well, we plan not like this. Like, I, I don't know. It's hard to tell people that weren't in Joplin in 2011 what it was like. I mean, it was like literally half the city was leveled. I can still remember the smell driving through. And I can still remember walking into the lobby of the other hospital and there were people out of the entire ER waiting room out into the main foyer area of the hospital all the way down the hallway and everybody had the same look and I will never forget that look. It was just this look of utter just shock and just this blank stare of what the hell just happened. And from a workplace violence standpoint, this is one of the things that hopefully you will start to take into account is the factors you can't control that are affecting the people that you're going to be dealing with. Were they just in a domestic violence? Had they just gone through a disaster? Now they think that they're dying, and if you don't treat them right that minute, you're going to have to take, you know, you're going to have to deal with it. That person, their threat level should be elevated. You should be paying more attention to how that person is. And while not every person in that, that lobby was doing that, if they thought their kid was hurt, guess what? you were going to have to pay more attention because they were more likely to, to be violent. And those are just some of the things that I'm, I'm hoping people are starting to pay attention to. If you have all of a sudden a bunch of people walk into your clinic and now they have to wait an extra 45 minutes, it doesn't seem like it's the same comparison, but it is. And you need to be paying attention to that. What are the triggers that people are going to be paying attention or that people are going to set them off? You don't always know what they're going to be. So you need to be aware of the factors that are affecting them prior to them even coming into your room. Now that we know a little bit about what workplace violence is, you know, we've talked about some of the risk factors. What is the most likely to happen? Okay, so let's be real clear here. In healthcare, the most likely avenues of violence for you are going to come from only three areas. Other staff members, which is a very low threat level, but it's still very possible. The patient's visitors or family, they have a highly or much higher likelihood of assaulting you, but still medium on your threat range. The patient, the very person that you are going to have to interact with is the most dangerous person that you are going to have to deal with. And so knowing what happened, why they are there, are all important factors in how you treat that situation. 
if they are there because they are high on drugs and they just assaulted someone, you can almost guarantee security and or other nurses are going to be involved. However, on the flip side, if they are the victim, and this has happened multiple times, I mean, anything we're talking about tonight, anybody can Google research on this and you'll find hundreds of entries. People that are the victim of gang violence, that they are the victim of domestic abuse. The other half, if they're not in custody, may be coming to finish the job. So you need to be aware of what's going on. And you know, with what you said there, Tom, as far as the patient being the the highest risk for assault against the healthcare worker, as opposed to other workers or the family members, I think some of that is kind of how the it's part of the job came about. You know, as nurses were, or as nurses in particular, it's it's a training of we're caring and we're compassionate, and we don't want to think of the patient like a criminal or to think of the patient like someone who's done something wrong. And so we chalk a lot of that up to, well, it was just part of the job. It was just, it's just the way that it was. It wasn't anything really bad. But then that incident happens over and over and over to the point that it just magnifies to the point that it becomes something so much more severe. And we need to not get out of that caring, compassionate mentality as, as nurses in general, but, we need to be cognizant of our own safety as well. You have to, because if you don't and you become a victim, now the staff have to take care of you and the patient. You're not helping anyone by putting yourself in harm's way. Let's just put it that way. If you are in a situation where there is imminent danger, you need to get away from it. There is no point in getting yourself hurt. You're not trained, you're not equipped, and you are not paid to be doing that, okay? Do not think that you are going to save the world because you yourself getting hurt is not going to help anyone for sure. And and honestly, I, I everyone's got different areas. And so, and as Ben pointed out to me yesterday, we have an international listeners, by the way. I didn't know if anybody else knew that. Like, that blew my mind. So wherever you're at, this can apply to you. When I moved to my current location, we actually have an affiliate uh, motorcycle gang here. They're not one of the big ones. You're, you know, you're not going to probably hear these guys on the news. They're not the Hells Angels or anything like that. But they are affiliated with one of the big four. That's what the big four motorcycle gangs are called, in case you didn't know that, Ben. And they're affiliated with them. And we had one of them come in the victim of a crime. And while taking care of this person, it became readily apparent that he was not going to be a problem, but the other people involved probably were. <laughs> and so you, we had to take care of our staff. Like, what am I supposed to do? Because them affecting the staff now affects all the other patients. If you get hurt and you have three patients, guess what? Now all the other nurses have to take care of your patients and theirs and you. And it just it just spirals out of control. Knowing what's happening, knowing what's going on around you is probably one of the first and most important keys to preventing workplace violence. Some of the new studies, Ben, and just in case people aren't, you know, sure enough yet about what's going on. So the American College of Emergency Physicians did a study that came out this month where they spoke with 3,500 of their fellows and 47% of them state, well, maybe they're not fellows, associates. Is that, yeah. Yeah. Physicians like, I would say physician, physicians like big words. So, you know, whatever. 
be nice. <laughs> oh, all my doctor friends out there know I love them. 47% of those surveyed by ASEP said they had been assaulted within the last year. 47%. In 2017, 72% had some type of violence, some type of threats, assaults, intimidation, whatever. And out of that 72%, 3% had charges filed by law enforcement. And that's pretty similar to some of the statistics that I found recently. Uh, it was an article from U.S. News and World Reports just talking about the entire spectrum of medicine. So this is talking about from from AIDS all the way up through physicians. Somewhere between 40 and 75% of healthcare workers report having suffered physical or verbal abuse from a patient or their family. And they may mention that, in fact, most such episodes are prolonged for hours to days because... Like you said, like on med surge floor, it's a patient that they're going to be taken care of for several days. It's not like the ER where they're gone in four or five hours. Another thing that people need to pay attention to, and I, I alluded to this earlier, that's 2017 statistics. That's 2018 statistics. Well, 2018 so far. In 2005, which feels like a long time ago, but it really wasn't, only 9% of the people surveyed said that they had dealt with this. So between 2005 and 2018, we have gone from a total of 9% of people saying they have dealt with workplace violence to 72%. That statistic in and of itself is kind of alarming, Tom. Well, it should be, and that's why this is a subject that's important to me, and it really should be important to everybody else. And again, I know we've been ER-heavy because a lot of statistics and studies are ER-centered, but if you don't think it can't happen to you, in 2017, last year, a doctor, Todd Graham, in Indiana, who was an orthopedic, was shot and killed outside of his clinic because he would not prescribe opiates to a patient. So everybody out there that was like, oh, well, maybe this episode's not for me because I don't work in the ER. I literally just told you that doing your job on a daily basis may result in the guy waiting outside and shooting you as you walk to your car. Which is more alarmingly scary than the statistic that you said earlier. But, I mean, truly, that is for doing your job. And granted, that's what most other people that are, you know, the 72% of people who are assaulted at work, they're doing their job. So, like you said, this, yeah, we talk about ER, but this can affect literally anybody in the healthcare spectrum. So now that we have covered Ben, what can happen and what is likely to happen, I think it's now important to say, Hey, not everything is doom and gloom. Okay. Here are some of the things that we can start doing to be proactive and taking care of ourselves. So the very first thing is, well, and I should say the very first thing, all these things are going to involve training and resources. So if you don't know what training and resources are available to you or what are possible, you have those resources available to you if you work for a health system. I guarantee you there's somebody dealing with that. If you don't work for a health system and you're in a private office, maybe it's time to have a discussion with the office manager or one of the lead physicians and say, hey, what are we going to do if this comes up? Yeah, that's exactly it. No, just... I think it was three or four months ago, I think our hospital did a active shooter drill. And you think, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, whatever it was, when, when I got into healthcare, 
you think you would have to do that. And now it's like it's become more commonplace because of all the weird, I say weird, but I mean all the bad shit that happens that you now have to have a plan for. Exactly. And and honestly, like I said, and we've pointed it out pretty much ad nauseum at this point, workplace violence is going up for healthcare. So, you know, there's a saying in the military, you train like you fight, or yeah, you fight like you train. <laughs> Sorry about that. Edit that one out there, Kyle. And Sam, the fact checker, big head nod. He said, I'm correct on that one. Basically, you have to take the stuff to heart. I mean, I'm not saying it's something that you need to stop patient care and practice every day, but you should know what the plan is and how to execute it if you want to survive this incident, which involves violence or a disaster. But getting to that, so let's go over some of the options. Your first option, or I don't have anything to disclose. I don't have anything invested in any of these companies or people. I'm just throwing out some things that I have seen or been around and that people can start using as a basis of understanding for their training. So the first one for hospitals and for violence is called ALICE. And ALICE stands for Alert, Lockdown, Inform, Counter, and Evacuate, which those are all the steps that they teach you in the ALICE class. That's what you do to help get away from an active shooter or a mass casualty event. The great things about ALICE is that it's very widespread. It is a very well-known program. And lots of your local law enforcement agencies, all the way up through state and federal agencies, they have dealt with this probably in some capacity at some time. So if this is the type of training you're going to incorporate, these guys are going to be able to help you out and or be able to work with you. Alice is great. That's actually what we use at our facility. And I believe the local colleges also use it as well. So I would think that you get that many people involved in it, at least you're all talking the same language which I think is helpful in incidents of this nature. Well, and Alice, among the other programs we're going to, uh, one at least one of the other programs we're going to talk about, is in the mindset of don't just sit there and be a victim. So you, be involved in your own rescue. And, and I think that is a very helpful thing. But again, without lack of, with a lack of training or a lack of understanding of what your plan actually is, it's not going to really help you a lot. You need to know what your options are and how to uh, enact that plan. The second plan was developed by Homeland Security, and it is called Run, Hide, Fight. And that's literally the steps. Talk about simplicity. They put it in the name. I do like the simplicity of that. I do got to say that. That's, you know, it's not one of those where it's like, oh, what do those stand for? No, that's uh, that's pretty damn specific. Yeah, and that's government work for you right there, buddy. So the sign itself for it has it illustrated with the unisex, you know, like little faceless people. And there's one guy running, and it says run, escape, if possible. And then it says hide, the little unisex person is getting under a table. It says if escape is not possible. And then it says fight, and it's literally got his hands up like he's going to punch somebody. And it says fight only as a last resort. So run, hide, fight. So basically if you can't read run, hide, fight, which, I mean, my, my daughter that's in kindergarten could probably read those words. But if you can't read those words, then, hey, they even drew pictures for you. And the pictures are pretty – is that guy disco dancing? No. His fists are up. So you're going to be able to understand what's going on. But the theory, the theory behind Run, Hide, Fight is distance. Distance is your friend, which, to be completely truthful, is a very – 
true axiom. Any sort of fight, especially involving firearms, the greater the distance, the less chance of being hit, depending on the marksman, obviously. But if we're talking about a guy that is in a fury state and he just has a firearm, the greater the distance between you and him, your chances of being hit drop significantly. So distance, distance, distance. And that Alice talks about that, I believe, a little bit in its training, if you can't do certain things. But that is the whole premise of the run-hide fight, is literally run. Step one, run. What are you supposed to be doing? Run. If you can't run, try and escape. And then you go to step two if you can't do any of those. So it's a very simple, but it's based on an effective thought process if you've ever been in any sort of uh, close combat training. I wonder how many times they had to test the run-hide disco dance before they realized that that was not going to be the appropriate step to take. Yeah, I wonder if the guy who designed all this went to the artist and said, are you f***ing with me? Like, what is going on here? What is this guy's? What is this guy doing? But and then he's like, oh, I get it. That's cool. <laughs> the, the, last, the last one is also, it's also very healthcare-centered. This one takes a little different, and I should point out, I don't believe that this... Uh, it's called it's nonviolent crisis intervention. It was developed by a company called CPI. I don't believe that this was actually designed for any sort of shooter. I shouldn't say that. I'm pretty sure that this was not designed for any sort of mass shooting, firearms involved. This is primarily for your very angry patient, and it's focused on uh, small scale situations. It relies mainly on your verbal skills and methods of de-escalation. So, honestly, it is very helpful in that. It does have some physical defense and some restraining moves that you can do yourself, but should practically involve other people if you're going to try and do it. So, I, I think anything is helpful. I think some of these are more helpful than others. But, honestly, again, knowing what your plan is... And how to enact it is probably the most important thing. And so let's just get that out there. I I think I've said it at least 15 times. Fact checker, get back to me on that one. But plan, plan, plan. Like, that is the basis of all of these. Hashtag know your plan. Hashtag Tom said it 15 times. So it must be true. Oh, well, first of all, anything I say is true. Let's just get that right out of the bat. So Anyway, yeah. (laughs) Grandiose thinking about the whole mental dis- mental health disorder uh, episode we need to do. Yeah, you're going to be the case. Study. Delusions of grandeur. They're not delusions if they're true, Ben. So let's say, Ben, let's just argument's sake. Let's say you know Alice or you know Run, Hide, Fight. You've been through CPI training. What else can you do? And honestly, and I think this is part of the thing we're going to have to have a little more discussion on here in a second, but the legal Contact your state representatives, contact your federal congressmen, contact your county attorneys. Be involved in the process of enacting legal action or protections for yourself and for healthcare workers in your area. There are states now that they're actually making it a felony offense to assault a healthcare worker, which I can remember back when I started nurse practitioner school, that was one of the things that floored me is in the state of Kansas at that time, and I don't know the law currently, I didn't have a chance to research that before we started recording. It's a felony to assault a jailer in the state of Kansas who has a multitude of tools to his disposal to properly detain you, yet it was just a misdemeanor for assault on a healthcare worker at the time. And, And honestly... 
I know there are some states, and again, from guys like Dog and their hashtags and social media, I know it has become more prominent, and so therefore people are trying to become more involved. But without our pressure, without us becoming involved in the legal process, it's still going to stay that way. We have to be the catalyst. We are the ones being effective. Let me tell you right now, the state congressman, he doesn't care. He'll care when you make him care. Okay, he's worried about budgets and other stuff, which is fine and dandy. You can't they can't care about everything all day long. So if you want to light a fire or or if you want to get something done, that's when you light the fire under their ass is what I'm trying to say. We have got to become the kindling, the fire that makes these things happen. Otherwise, they're just not. And we're going to be sitting here talking about this a year from now when we have our workplace violence recap and nothing's going to have changed. Well, speaking of lighting a fire under their ass, Tom, I did, in my research, I found something that I found interesting. I cannot wait. There is actually a House bill right now. It's House Bill 5223, currently in Congress. It was introduced by the Democratic representative from California, and it is the Health Care Workplace Violence Prevention Act. So what this is supposed to do is it's going to, if this was to pass into law, it's going to direct the Secretary of Labor to issue an OSHA rule that requires covered health care employers to adopt a comprehensive workplace violence prevention plan. And I think that's pretty awesome. Now, we may not agree on a lot of things throughout the healthcare spectrum, uh, you know, whether it's full practice authority for nurse practitioners or whether it's reimbursement rates for advanced practitioners versus physicians or whatever the case may be, but this is something that every single healthcare person should be able to get behind. House Bill 5223, Healthcare Workplace Violence Prevention Act. Be the catalyst. Be the kindling that lights the fire under their ass. Contact your senators after these midterm elections and say, we want this bill out of committee. We want this bill a law. Protect your healthcare workers. Who's going to take care of people when all the healthcare workers are knocked out? Who's going to take care of people when the healthcare workers, the shortage gets worse because people don't want to, you know, people aren't going into nursing because they don't want to be a punching bag. Be the catalyst. Be the change. Call your representatives and your senators. House Bill 5223, Healthcare Workplace Violence Prevention Act. And honestly, that was something else I was going to get to when we're talking about this. Social media is everywhere. Your congressman... Your state senators, your local representatives, guess what? They all have a Facebook. They all have an Instagram. They all have a Twitter. Please use it. If you don't want to call them or you don't, you can get involved in this process now from your chair. Like literally, it is that simple. So please be part of the solution. Let's get this fixed. We are all involved. This is one of the few, very few subjects that literally we are all in this boat together there is not one person in healthcare from the registrar to the trauma surgeon that health that workplace violence is not going to affect us be be part of the team let's let's all work together and let's get that down and since i talked about social media ben i want to say one more time house bill five two two three healthcare workplace violence prevention act also i'm going to throw z dogs Hashtag out there. Hashtag silent no more. These are ways to help become part of the solution. But since you said social media, Tom, I'm going to go ahead and do this. And people think that maybe this is recording. No, I do this live every single time because I love it so much. If 
you want to reach out to us and join our conversation, you can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. Or you can reach us on our website, www.justsomepodcast.com. Or you can email us, admin at justsomepodcast.com. The joy that this man has on his face when he gets to do that is, seriously, I, at this point, I might do it a whole episode where every three or four sentences I go, Ben, did someone say social media? And just see what happens. Like, I really want to see what happens when we do that, Ben. Is that like a Pavlonian experiment? I don't know. Do you drool when you say this? Say social media again. Social media. Yeah, okay, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Oh, see, it's working, <laughs> people. It's working. So let me just summarize this in four talking points, which if you're getting angry right now, be like, Tom, I've listened to you talk for an hour. You could have done this in four points. I could have, but I really enjoy hearing myself talk, and I really, really love Ben saying social media stuff over and over again. There's a drool again, yeah. <laughs> So here we go. In summary, here's what I want you to take away from this. I want you to get all that information that we talked about earlier. Put all that together. Everything about workplace violence. Everything about disasters in in your area. Here's what you need to know. One, know what violence is out there. Know what's going on around you. What's going on in your area. Do you have gangs? Do you have motorcycle clubs? What What is most likely to be the violence in your area? Two, what is most likely occur what is most likely to occur in your unit? If you work in a family practice, you probably don't have to worry about ER related incidents. If you work on fifth floor, you know you need to know what happens on fifth floor. If you work in an orthopedic office, you need to know like what's going on out there or what you're close to or what your evacuations around are. But know what's most likely to occur to you where you're at. Three, be vigilant of your surroundings. The second you come on you come on duty, you have to be vigilant. All those key markers we talked about earlier, you know, people being upset because they were just involved in a mass casualty incident, people that are mad because of wait times, people that are mad because they didn't get their prescription drugs. Be vigilant of what's going on around you, even if it's not in your room. If you hear someone talking loud down the hallway or someone says, hey, I just had a ma- an angry patient, be vigilant of what's going on around, going on around you. And fourth and finally, and certainly not least, have a plan. I think I've said that 17 times now. Hashtag know your plan. Oh, so we got plenty of hashtags this episode. But finally, seriously, have a plan. Because Ben said it, I've said it, any clash you're ever going to go to on any workplace violence is going to have this. This is going to happen. It may be a minor event. It may be a major event. But it is going to happen, and it's going to happen to you. So please... Have a plan and know what you're going to do. And the only two talking points that I want to leave you with are House Bill 5223, Healthcare Workplace Violence Prevention Act, hashtag silent no more. Oh, my God. He he lives for this, people. Like, I honestly, it, it, it's it's like watching Mozart write music. I Him and the social media shout-outs and talking points is just, mwah. I, I just... Uh, if I had like a cool Italian accent, I'd be like "Ciao Bella" or something like that. Like it's just this guy is just fantastic. Well, Tom, you're able to bow on this episode. I think I am, and um, I know we covered a lot, but this, as we've said before, is a very important subject to I should be to all of us, but including me. So please, if you have questions, if you have concerns, if you have feedback, get a hold of us at one of the many, 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 many social media outlets we have or email us and we will get back to you and we we can discuss this but it's my 
dearest and sincerest hope that we all take this serious and we all go home safe. I guess, I, I guess, Ben, one last thing, and you can edit this in or edit this out, whatever. I trained police officers when, when I was on there. I'd been there long enough to do that. And literally, the very first thing I told them at the beginning of every shift, every time we got in a patrol car, and again when we left, was rule number one. And rule number one is you go home. You be safe and you go home. And honestly, it's sad. I was just going to say that. It's sad, but in healthcare, it has now become, you need to remember rule number one. And people used to ask me why I got out of law enforcement, and I used to joke and say, well, because no one tries to stab me in nursing. Well, now they might. But rule number one, people, is you got to take care of you. Rule number one, you go home. I think it's a perfect ending to this episode, Tom. So uh, this is Ben. I'm going to sign off. We'll talk to you guys next week. Have a great week. And this is Tom. Everybody out there, stay safe.